Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I am a feminist, but I went to the Women of the Year lunch. I was honored. I mean, they didn't honor me. I mean, I just honored to go. That's... No, no, there was no trophy for me. It was like the people that got trophies were amazing. Like seriously changing the world in a way that made me go, oh God. But we all said that, to be fair. I was in a long queue for the loo because it was the Women of the Year lunch. And (laughs) we were all in the queue going, did you feel really pleased when you were invited? And then when you saw the people that were honoured, you went, oh no. Uh, And we all agreed on that. But anyway, that's not my thing. I'm a feminist, but at the Women of the Year lunch, Helen Pankhurst spoke... And I was so tired, because I'd only had three hours sleep the night before, that I yawned. And Ronke Phillips, the newsreader, was sitting next to me. And she went, are you bored? (laughs) Because you think what Helen Pankhurst is saying is passé? Or have you just heard her say it before? And I went, no, I'm just really tired. I'm just really tired. But they were her options. She was like, either this is the speech she gives... And you've just gone, ah, oh, this again. Or you genuinely don't feel she's got much to say. They were <laughs> I was like, no, Ron K. Phillips, I really love you and Helen Pankhurst and all of the Pankhursts. I'm just tired because I only had three hours sleep. Oh, I was lucky to be invited to this. I'm never getting an award because Ron K's on the committee. <laughs> I mean, that's... I won an award. Did in you? In Ireland, yeah, for Comedy Woman of the Year. Um, that wasn't a category now, so I just want that to be clear. It's not that I lost it. <laughs> I didn't lose it. It wasn't a category. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I went to a generic award show, right, Tom? And in the goodie bag, there was, like, breakfast bars, and there was, there was good stuff, but there was 100 euro off liposuction, and you had to use it by the end of that month, right? <laughs> so, but I genuinely Googled how much liposuction is, because if it was 150 euro, and they were giving me 100 euro off, yeah, I would. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but then I was like, anyway, that is how guilty I am. And then someone genuinely told me that uh, getting liposuction is not a good idea. I don't um, think it's not that safe, I don't think. No. Uh, no, that was good. But I, I feel like also it's a lot more expensive than 150 quid. I feel like if liposuction costs 150 quid, definitely don't have it. 
something. You want to go... There's some guy with a Henry the Hoover and a hose pipe. <laughs> and he's like, I'll sort you out, love. There's two <laughs> things that need... Listen, I don't think you should have it at all. I know. But if you I are going to have it, that's something you need to save for and pay top dollar. The other thing is laser eye surgery. Don't get that on Groupon. <laughs> it's somebody cutting your eye with laser. Definitely go for the most expensive laser eye surgery you can afford or don't have it. I genuinely... This is like... About eight years ago, I snogged a fella who told me he worked for a laser eye surgery and he got free glasses and he was offering me my pick of any of the glasses that are disposed of at the laser eye surgery. <laughs> and I genuinely was impressed. <laughs> so you snogged him? Yeah, I was he, like, you, he said he's any, a keeper. Any, any, what, you could have any of the old glasses that people left there because they're like, I don't need them anymore. I've had laser eye surgery. Exactly. In a very real way, most of the prescriptions would not be right, though. That's, <laughs> you need to be clear about that. Yeah, but, like, you know, it might have Tommy Hilfiger on the side and who needs eyesight? <laughs> when you can't watch walking into walls in Prada glasses. With style. You know? <laughs> I'm a feminist, but at the Women of the Year lunch... I was meant to be congratulating a woman on her achievements, but I ended up complimenting her for fitting into anything that Karen Millen makes. She said her dress was Karen Millen. I was like, how can you get into anything? Because in my opinion, she doesn't make any clothes that fit any people. That's science. I'm a feminist, but up until I was 25, I thought it was Emmeline Pancake... And I thought she threw herself under the horse like about 40% of you did. I'm a feminist, but at the Women of the Year lunch, I got into a low-level argument with a woman about Spanx. I said they were unfeminist. I really don't believe in them. I think it's sort of going back to corseting women. And then towards the end of the argument said, well, all right, I'm wearing them now, but this is a very specific dress. It's only one dress I wear them with, and it was a very specific dress. But, and I just don't... I didn't even have any for years, but this dress did. I was like, oh, no, OK. And it just wasn't the day to be arguing that case. I still maintain it, though. I still maintain they are unfeminist, and I've only got one pair, and a little pair of the boy short ones, but that's... They're nice. I like those. I'm a feminist, but when I first moved to my house last week in London... I looked up local murders in my area before I bought milk. <laughs> All I could find was that end-ups are from the area that I'm living in now. <laughs> and also the IRA bombed the street down from where I'm living. And uh, it killed no one and it made me strangely patriotic. <laughs> I was like, e that's my country. <laughs> Live from King's Place in London, the Spontaneous Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Alison Smittle, very special guests Richard Radcliffe, Tulip Sadiq MP, Emmy Howe and Natalie Savat. Talking about, nevertheless, she persisted. 
This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White and today I'm joined by Alison Spittle to talk about Nevertheless, She Persisted! Woo! We're basically talking about persistence, not specifically where that phrase came from, but persistence, because sometimes feminism requires relentless stamina, persistence... Uh, never giving up, even when you want to, and not giving up when you can't. Deborah, this place is very swanky. I like it. It's a bit upmarket, isn't it? Yeah, it is beautiful. I've just moved to the area from Ireland, so uh, I'm super enamoured with everything, especially Pret. Uh, <laughs> do you not have Pret in Dublin? We, no, we do not. We, I, I'm, I'm a feminist, right? Yeah. But... I'm more angry that we don't have Pret in Ireland rather than abortion. So, I mean, it's my everyday life, you know? Repeal the cake. Yes, exactly. I didn't realise that. You are getting abortion, though. That's coming in. Maybe yeah. you could bring Pret with it. Yeah, like it's a slippery slope that they were afraid of, do you know? They're like, who are they going to marry? A Pret? And then it'll be like, yeah. yeah. Do you think we'll lose Pret? When we eat Brexit. It's oh. a French name. Oh, that's true. That's yeah. true. Maybe you'll burn it to make medicine. Or... <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. You say you. You've moved here on purpose. I know! <laughs> You've moved into Brexit country on purpose. So, I wanted to talk about a woman who persisted tonight as a sort of starter for ten. And so I wanted to talk about Jerry Cobb. And I've written about her in my book, which you can buy. This is a woman I'm really fascinated with. So her name's Jerry Cobb. In the early 1960s, with 24 other female pilots, she was put into a NASA program. She had to go through this physical and psychological evaluation as part of the First Lady Astronaut Trainees Program. Now, there were already astronauts in space. This was very I Dream of Genie territory. Jerry ranked in the top 2% of all the astronaut candidates, regardless of gender. So that's good. That is actually no surprise because she'd been teaching men to fly planes when she was only 19 years of age. She used to sleep underneath her plane. She was so devoted. And she had gone on to set world records for speed, altitude and distance. She was told by NASA that she'd be the first woman in space and was celebrated on television. However, America wasn't ready to let its all-male quota of astronauts go. NASA cancelled the women's programme in 1963 and a congressional hearing upheld this decision during which astronaut John Glenn... Do you remember John Glenn? He's a good guy. Yeah, in Hidden Figures, he was the good guy. He was one of the good guys. He testified in court. Men go off and fight the wars and fly the aeroplanes and added that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order. Um, So Jerry left NASA and returned to flying and was named Pilot of the Year by her colleagues. She also went on to do extraordinary humanitarian work, and America did not allow a woman into space after first saying they could go into space and telling Jerry she was going to go and then deciding, no, no, you're a woman. That's the only reason. How many years after that, do you reckon, did they finally let a woman into space? 21 years. That was very A whole person who could drink in America older. Now, here's the bit. In 1998... John Glenn got back in a rocket at the age of 77 and was lauded as the oldest man in space. 67-year-old Jerry petitioned to go too, arguing that the opportunity had been denied her originally in part due to Glenn's sexism. 
her request was refused. She begged and said that she would seriously accept a one-way ticket to space, that they could leave her there. I know. John Glenn got to go without her. Jerry Cobb turned 86 this year. And personally, I wouldn't mind betting she still gets there. I sort of want to have a, like a petition to still get Jerry Cobb into space before she dies. But what I find fascinating about that is how long she was able to hold that dream and how much other work she didn't let them stopping her do the things she most wanted to do from stopping her doing all these other things. What I find fascinating is why did John Glenn... I understand the first time it was sexism and it was the 60s, but in the 90s, Mm. what did he have against... Other women had already been up. She was not going to be the first woman in space. What did he have against it? Yeah, why is John Glenn such a prick, uh, should be the question that we're asking. I think that is the question. Is he still alive? uh, Is John Glenn still alive? I don't know if he... Someone literally Google if John Glenn is still alive. Can we have an official Google for this episode? What comforts me when men are bad to women is that ultimately we will live longer, you know? So that's the ultimate revenge. Are you hoping that Jerry Cobb's still... Yay! (laughs) Okay. He's dead. <laughs> How, when did he die? 2016. 2016. 2016. Jerry Cobb's still alive, though, yeah? Can you just check? Because she was alive when I wrote the book. <laughs> but I, I just don't want to be starting a petition to get her into space if she's dead. <laughs> I, want, I, want but... be, I want to be finger on the pulse here at The Guilty Feminist, and I mean literally in this case. <laughs> Even if she does die, like, uh, I know that Johnny Depp, in his wisdom... Um, paid millions of quid to get his mate Hunter S. Thompson into space after he died. Got his ashes and flung it into a rocket and then put it into space. So what? You... So the worst comes to worst, we can wait until she dies <laughs> and take and some of her ashes. <laughs> what, and do a Patreon to get her ashes into... You just spent it to cost millions of quid. Well, I don't know if we could get like I a don't few... know that millions of quid is an expression. I think, is that an Irish thing? Is it? Millions of quid. Yeah, we don't say that. You don't say millions of quid? I've never said millions of quid. I've never heard it before. Really? Does anyone else know millions of quid? Okay, just people over there. Okay. Okay, so I think it'd be nice to get her into space when she's alive. I think that would be more useful. So let's try and get Jerry Cobb into space. There must be a way of doing it. I think, do you know why I think he stopped her? Why? I really do think he stopped her because he wanted the headline oldest man in space not oldest man in space and woman he sexlessly stopped with him he didn't want any bad press so he denied her going to space even though he'd been in space loads he wanted just to be the star of the show he didn't want a negative news story so he just stopped her again and i'm still upset about it but she's persisted and i just feel like this is a really good example of somebody who has lived her life doing the best that she can within the restrictions of the patriarchy, and we owe her that. That's such a beautiful story. I'm sorry mm. for, like, besmirching it by wishing death on John Glenn. No, 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 not at all. The other thing is, I think, is some men, old-school yeah. men like John Glenn, they don't want to be distracted by tits at work. <laughs> I genuinely do believe that. <gasps> tits in space. That's you know? right. They, he doesn't want tits in space. He's like, I'm in space, darling, honey, sweetheart. He's of that madman era. Yeah, there's no gravity in space, so they would just be <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> They'd be bouncing around. It's like, I don't want to look at tits in space. I'm working, honey. When I get back down, we'll go for a cocktail. 
and he's Don Draper in space. Don Draper in space. That would be fun. That would but be fun. I've known men like that. I know men in comedy like that. They don't really want tits in the room. That's and very true. If we were sitting on the stairs, it's so hard as a woman to contribute to a conversation where someone's like, oh, look at the arse on her. And you're like, yeah, I, I see it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that in comedy where sometimes they, if you're the only woman, they just throw you in with the boys. They talk about other women's bodies and you either have to then go, oh, don't do that, and I'm the humorless one. Or you have to go, it is a fine specimen of a bottom. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And then, but then the conversation ends like because you can't uh, follow through with it. You're like, yes, it's a nice arse. Now what? You know? <laughs> What happens now? <laughs> I don't know. You have to ask some men what they say after that. Right? A nice arsebreaker conversation. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> if you were sort of, oh, he's got an arse bottom. Yes, he has. What happens after that? And you're like, more peas? Or, do you know, for dinner party? <laughs> probably, probably. Yeah. Are we ready for some stand-up comedy? Please welcome to the stage the wonderful Alison Spittle. Hello. So this is about nevertheless she persisted and I was trying to think of stuff that I persist at and it's uh, trying not to get robbed. That's uh, (laughs) one of the big things I try and fail. (laughs) I've been robbed about 12 times, I think, all in all. The best way I've got robbed was once I was cycling and this man was able to jog up beside me <laughs> and just yoink my laptop out of my basket. And I was saying to myself, Alison, you've got to work on your cardio, chicken. You cannot make it this easy for these people, you know? So, and it was, it was a leisurely jog that man was doing. So... Other times I've been robbed. There's one time, and I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell you. I was freshly out of my mum's house, and I was living in a house with flatmates in Dublin. And I was watching Graham Norton and roasting some nuts, because I'm an adult, right? (laughs) It felt like the most adulty thing to do was to roast some cashews with some maple syrup, you know? And I had a mini oven, I was delighted. And I could hear footsteps upstairs, and I called down my landlady, and I was like... Lillian, Lillian, and what came down was a man with a pillowcase over his face, right? And another pillowcase full of laptops, right? They were my pillowcases as well. (laughs) The indignity. Uh, He he just looked like he was at a very bad uh, dress-up party as well. And he came down and he said to me, um, car keys, car keys, right? And I stood there. I was so scared, and I was like, um, well, uh, I, I, I tried to learn how to drive when I was 15, <laughs> um, but I couldn't work the clutch. <laughs> I don't feel responsible enough to be able to drive yet. And while I was saying that, he was taking my dough. And then the next time, I moved to a new house because I wanted to get away from the ghosts of robbing past, right? So I moved to this new house, and it was two weeks later, and I came in with my new flatmate, uh, Hyson, who's from South Korea. And we came in and uh, we saw two guys at the top of the stairs with crowbars in their hands, right? So I said to Hyson, Hyson, I know what to do. And I rolled up into a ball like a hedgehog, right? <laughs> and just started swearing <laughs> for no reason. 
And the guys ran down the stairs and they were like bears. They were more afraid of me than I was of them, right? And they tried to open up the front door. But the problem was that I was rolled up in a ball in front of the front door and they couldn't physically open the front door, right? And I was just shouting at them going, I'm going to call the police so hard when you leave. <laughs> it got to the point where they just lightly footed me to the side. Like you do with like dirty underwear before a fella comes into your house. You know, you're like, I'll just kick that underneath the bed. Um, so they put me to the side and they walked out. And um, Heisen ran into her room to check uh, to see what they have taken because she had £1,800 worth of South Korean money in her drawer and a tenner sterling, right? And guess which one the guys took? The tenner. Ah! It's like we robbed them. <laughs> we were delighted. <laughs> I was so happy, right? I was kind of like afraid to be in my house because intruders, right? And what I found myself doing was spending a lot of time outside. I was cycling home one night and uh, I heard this sound. I heard this uh, voice that went, hello? Oh, hello, right? And I was like, well, this sounds like a greeting. What's this, right? And I looked and there was a man standing, right? And he was waving in a really weird way. He was waving like this. I was like, what's, what's he waving at? It was exposed genitalia. The guy was having a wank on the side of the road, right? And I screamed. And that was the scariest experience I've ever had in my life. And I cycled as fast as I could home. And I called the police. And the police were amazing. They kind of bundled into the house. And they were like, don't worry. He's a voyeur. Don't worry about it. And... I found it really funny that these like Irish kind of policemen were bundling in trying to pronounce voyeur like it was French, you know, like sommelier or something like that. They're describing something like And they asked me, they said to me, uh, can you describe what the assailant looked like, right? And because I'm a comedian and I put lots of like, uh, uh, I describe stuff in weird ways. I, I wanted to describe this person as much as I could. And I said, he looks like a member of the Backstreet Boys from the late 90s, right? <laughs> and the policeman wrote that down. <laughs> it is notebook. It's incredible, right? So what happened to me, right, from being robbed and being flashed is I had this weird kind of storm of only feeling safe in the doorframe of my front door. Like that's where I felt safe, so I would just stand there for ages. And I ended up just being in my room and not being able to leave my room for days. And I don't know if you've ever had like the start of a nervous breakdown, but you're in a lot of denial. Uh, first off, at the start of a nervous breakdown, you go, oh, I just really like Netflix a lot that I need to watch it for 14 hours straight, right? And I was watching Netflix and I was in my house, in my room for about... I'd say about three days, and my room is not en suite. And I needed a piss very badly. But your mind goes to denial. And I was like, no, if you hold your piss in for long enough, Alison, it's equivalent to Kegel exercise. It's perfectly fine. And I was just imagining myself, like, pulling a lorry or something like that with my bladder. I was like, this is amazing. Like, an iron I would love to see that Ironman competition where it's just people doing their Kegel exercises with like big concrete balls or something like that and the thing is the denial had to stop at some point because I literally did really need to piss right and in my mind I was going Alison don't worry about it you don't need to leave your room and I was like no no I, I really do and my mind goes no no it's fine look over there there's a pint glass 
you can MacGyver yourself a toilet out that pint glass, right? <laughs> and uh, the dignity in me left, right? And I ended up, I don't know, like, part of me went, can I piss into a pint glass? Like, can I do that? Like, am I able to lower myself? Can I piss into a pint glass? But yeah, you can. You can piss into a pint glass. It is physically possible. And while you're doing something mental, you're just dealing with the task in hand, right? So I was pissing into this pint glass, congratulating myself for not getting it on the carpet at all. When I should be going, what are you doing pissing into a pint glass? And I was like, no, no, it's good. You're not getting the carpet. And... I put it back on the windowsill and I ended up looking at the pint glass just swirling piss, right? Like a pint glass full of shame, right? And I was like, only mental people have cold glasses of piss in their rooms. You need to get that piss out of this room before it goes cold, Alison, and you're totally sane, right? So I went to go to open up the door, but I couldn't. I couldn't open up the door and I felt trapped, right? And I can hear my flatmates downstairs, and that's not a conversation I want to have with my flatmates, especially as that's a communal class. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. <laughs> so what I ended up doing, what I ended up doing, right, was just shouting out the window because my neighbours were in the garden, and I thought they could see up into my window, and I thought they'd look up and go, "Is that piss? Is that a pint glass full of piss? Is that?" Girl? And so I just started shouting out the window, it's Baraka, it's Baraka. As if the neighbors who were in the garden were going, I thought that girl was mentally ill. Until she started shouting out, it's Baraka. Now my fears are unfounded. So, so I just got, I opened up the window, got the pint glass and threw it out into my back garden like a Dickensian angry housewife, just <laughs> throwing it out. And that's how I got a therapist. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Hello, Guilty Feminist. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Christmas. Happy whatever you celebrate. Happy end of the year. If you're looking for presents, you could get the Guilty Feminist book from Waterstones, from Amazon or any good bookshop. Don't forget to leave a review on Amazon or Goodreads if you enjoy it. Now, if you'd like me to sign this book and leave a special Christmas message for somebody and you live in London, you could come to the Choose Love Shop, which is for help refugees. It's at 30 Ferbert's Place off Carnaby Street, W1F. I'm going to be there this Friday, the 7th of December at 6pm. And it's not just going to be me. It's going to be Yomi and Elizabeth from Slay in Your Lane, the Black Girl Bible. Bring that book as well. Get them to sign it. It's going to be Roxanne, Oracy and Omar Rose from Suffragedon. There's soon going to be an EP of that out. Come and meet them. Get your pictures with them and ask for Instagram. If that's not enough, Ned Sedgwick and Steve Alley from Grown Up Land are going to be there. More people from Grown Up Land to be confirmed. And we'll all have a picture with you. We'll do some Instagram heaven shots. If you buy as little as a £3 shower for a refugee, a £5 warm meal, there are all sorts of wonderful things you can buy. There are thermal baby grows. It's so cold in Calais at the moment. It's so cold in Greece. Your gift of a blanket could actually save a life. And that is no exaggeration. So please come down. If you buy Choose Love 
gorgeous gold and silver Christmas merch, which make great presents to open on Christmas morning. You will also be helping people who are in absolute desperate, desperate need. Let's get down there to this shop Friday night, 7th of December, 6pm and make it a real Instagram splash together. We're going to have so much fun. Do not miss it. Spread the choose love message. Speaking of Grown Up Land, once you have your picture with Ned and Steve, you can listen to new episodes on BBC Sounds, which are up right now. There's a new season and it's a really, really good one. There are also new episodes of Global Pillage at globalpillage.net. There are shows on the 8th and the 15th of December at King's Place. All of the tickets are sold out, except there are some walk-ups on the day. They hold back some tickets. So if you want to go 4pm, 8th and 15th of December, just get there early to get yourself a ticket on the day. Two Fridays ago, I did have I Got News for you. If you are in the UK, you can see it on BBC iPlayer. And I believe it's available on YouTube if you're somewhere else in the world. It was a brilliant time. David Mitchell was hosting. Get in there and have a watch. And this Friday night on Channel 4, I'm doing the end of year review show with Rob Reinder, giving my feminist lowlights and highlights of the year. So tune into that or check it out on all four. And finally, we have a national tour coming up in May next year all over the UK. We're hoping to announce other countries too but if you're in the UK tickets to that are going to make great Christmas presents that show will not be podcast it'll be an all singing all dancing guilty feminist extravaganza please get your tickets now don't miss out it's selling really really fast go to guiltyfeminist.com or Ticketmaster to check out those dates back to the podcast I'm going to read a section from my book. It's about things that we think of as guilty pleasures. You know, the sort of I'm a feminist but things. And what I'm arguing is that in most of these things, I think there is a hidden feminism. There's something we're being drawn to that actually really isn't the guilty part. So I'm sort of discussing things like rom-coms and BDSM. <laughs> and this one is about weddings. And the reason I want to read this to you is because I think sometimes women are incredibly persistent in ways that we are not given credit for. I'm a feminist, but I spent more time shopping for a wedding dress than I've spent on protesting in my life. <laughs> Brides can be notoriously particular, demanding and emotional about their big day. Some are even accused of becoming bridezillas. None of this seems very feminist on the face of it. The marriage tradition itself is the patriarchy special with a side of people as property. Get past that to a place where it's a consensual union of two lovers who wish to formalise their relationship in a cocktail of romance, stability and financially efficient living. And the wedding itself is surely the superficial time waster. Why can't you just go down to the registry office with a few friends in something you already have in your wardrobe? Why do you need to spend hours forcing your best friends and your fiancé sister, who you don't even like into uniforms like taffeta soldiers with wildflower helmets. Even more inscrutable, why would a person who's never noticed a seat back in her life suddenly care deeply about there being a length of ivory taffeta ribbon on 150 reclaimed wooden church chairs? It is superficial, it is narcissistic, it is actual madness. How can it be anything except the opposite of feminist? Say yes to the dress. 
is a reality TV show that is no more than some fixed rig cameras in a bridal gown store. The whole show is brides-to-be trying on dresses, and sometimes they don't even buy them. I love watching it, and for a long time I couldn't work out why. How could I possibly care about truculent, mawkish strangers sobbing over tulle? (laughs) Then it struck me. I'm watching women be central to proceedings and demand perfection without apology. I'm not suggesting for one second that bridal gowns equal feminism, clearly not. I am saying there's a hidden power in the process because it's one of the only socially acceptable spheres of almost entirely female, or fabulously gay male, (laughs) influence. Some women become bridezillas because it might be the only time in their life that they're in complete control of everything in their domain. And they can, at least sometimes, even get their own mothers to back down and bow to their wishes. (laughs) When I watch Say Yes to the Dress, I'm watching young women Working-class women, plus-size women, racially diverse women, given space, given time, given the power of command. Women literally put on a pedestal in the middle of a beautifully lit multi-mirrored oasis with staff running to fetch and carry anything they desire. A woman is given permission to wait till she's laced into a ball gown worth more than her rent for a year and then says, I don't like it, it's not me. At that point, her family, friends and relatives who are sitting and watching proceedings like a film star's entourage agree that she should trust her instincts and the dress should be banished. (laughs) Here is a woman who cannot be (laughs) frock-blocked. I am watching an empress. I am watching a woman behave with the same certainty and capriciousness as a mediocre man in middle management. She's calling the shots, and not just on her dress, but on his suit and their flower arrangements and the colour of the cars and the first chord that will play as everyone turns to look at her and gasp as she walks down the aisle as she takes her moment without hesitation, without feeling obliged even once to say, I just had a thought, I don't know if it's worth mentioning. (laughs) I am watching a woman say, look at me, see me take up time. Wait while I walk down the aisle as slowly as possible (laughs) so everyone can see my poise and beauty. See me take up space with the train on my dress which inhabits more floor than I need so you understand that this space is mine. (laughs) See the height of my veil. Taste the champagne I chose because it was my favourite. And notice the length, sheen and colour of the fucking chair ribbons. (laughs) I have collated every detail of this room, these people, this day. Because if all other days are days of deference to men and people-pleasing and the demands of children and boorish work colleagues who talk over me, this day, this space, this dress is wholly mine. And no, Max, you can't ruin it with a purple Ferrari between wedding venues because this isn't your day. You've had 10,000 years of history. You've had 3,650,000 days. This one is mine. I'm a woman and you will watch me take control so comprehensively and unreasonably. You'll want to name a monster movie after me, not the other way around. (laughs) I take control of it, not because I care more about pink tea roses than political influence but because roses 
is all that's on offer. My conclusion is not that we should lean into the wedding obsession. It is rather that weddings are further evidence that women are brilliant at producing highly detailed operations and managing the emotions of a throng of people. If society routinely allowed women as much space and deference in other areas of life and endowed them with carte blanche influence, they would relish it and get spectacular results. When society offers tribal confidence, women's self-confidence soars. Wedding trappings might be a superficial distraction, but they are also, for some women at least, a temporary power grab at the threshold of a life of capitulation. Thank you. We have a very special guest because we are going to be talking about Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. Now, most of you will know about Nazanin. She is in an Iranian prison cell tonight, even though she has committed no crime. Many of you may know I'm an Amnesty ambassador and members of Amnesty International are here tonight who are working very hard to free Nazanin. Our guests include her husband, Richard Radcliffe, her MP, Tulip Sadiq, and Emmy Hal and Natalie Savat, who are currently doing a play about Nazanin. So in this spirit, and to edge us into the next act of this show, and find this amazing feminist spirit between us, I would like to introduce to the stage a very, very special performer. She's very much known as a singer, but tonight she's doing a piece of performance poetry. Put your hands together and make extraordinary noises for the wonderful Imelda May! I was going to do one that I wrote about um, a vibrator, but in the, I'll leave that one down in the spirit of things. Um, thank you to Richard and to Lucy McNamara from Amnesty for inviting me again. And anyway, I'll just read this. A little food for thought. Me, I, mine, my. Self, inward, reversed eye from my point of view if you ask me in my opinion my feeling on this from where I stand the way I see it is we've all gone unsighted blighted blinkered to the you those them they us our we all searching for the one the same ubiquitous spirit through kindred circles on social anti-social mediums likes bites blogs swipes approvals appraisals applause stop breathe feel Bond, blend, bend every rule. Our inner compass facing out. We know all this. We already deep down know. But childlike neediness, open mouths and grasping at the wrong breast, the wrong neck to smell safe that leaves us cry alone. Before the aliens come to give us a sense of community, uncommon humanity. Can we forgive if not forget? Can we give not to get? I'll scratch your back first. I'll soften jagged words. My hand is out. 
don't leave me hanging. If love is the answer, what's our questions? Amelda May, everybody! Amelda, before you go, can you just tell us a little bit about where we can see more of you? We know you for music, but for your performance poetry, is there only where we can see you? I've been writing poetry for years, and I think I'm going to um, release a poetry book soon, because I think I want to do more of it. Wonderful. When I keep it quiet normally, but yeah, I don't want to be quiet anymore. Well, when you've, when, you've got to, when you've got your poetry book, please come back to The Guilty Feminist and give us some more. Amelda May, everybody. Thank you. Now, uh, we have a very special performance. It's a monologue from Nazanin's story a play that is currently touring around the UK. It was written, directed and produced by Emmy Hall, and it will be performed tonight by Natalie Savat, who is playing Nazanin. Please welcome to the stage, Natalie Savat. Gabriela Magisu, my sweet daughter. Forgive me for the first week of our separation when neither of us knew what was happening and when you were burning in fever as a way of protesting separation from your mother's bosom. Forgive me, for they did not only take you away from your mother, but from your father too. How could I even imagine that destiny would strike us separate for so long, my, my sweet girl? The sound of your laughter keeps ringing in my ears, becoming one with me. Did they not hear the long nightly whimpers of a mother? Those who issued a guilty verdict and to achieve their ends accused me, reproached me, and locked me up in solitary confinement. My darling daughter, for every new tooth you grew, every, every new word you learnt, every step you climbed without help, every centimetre you grew in, the first time you put on a dress by yourself, ate your first meal without help, Drew your first drawing, learned your first poem, learned colors in two different languages. I was happy, but I also cried. I had missed days that would not return, and I felt powerless as they passed my, my gisu. Forgive me for not being there for your second birthday, for not even being granted a brief phone call. One day I will tell you the story of all these lonely days, a story of pain and separation. There will come a day when I will have to learn whether strawberries and blueberries are still your favorite fruit, whether orange is still your favorite color. Perhaps they are no longer. There will come a day when we will be together again and we will tenderly hold one another's loving hands. They can't take away from us our memories. They can't take away our dreams for the future. That was Natalie Savat doing a monologue from Nazanin's story. We would like to now introduce the rest of the panel. Richard Radcliffe, Tulip Sadiq MP and Emmy Howell. 
right, so I'm just going to get everyone to introduce themselves. Uh, yes, so I'm Emmy Howell. I'm the writer, director and producer of Nazanin's Story and I run Howell Productions. I'm Tulip Sadiq. I'm the MP for Hampstead and Kilburn. And most importantly, I'm Richard and Nazanin's local MP. Hello, everyone. So my name is Richard Ratcliffe. I'm the husband of Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe. My name is Natalie Servat, and I play Nazanin in Nazanin's Story. So, Richard, let's come to you first for the basic headlines. So we've got listeners all around the world, and so some of our international listeners may not know this story. So could you please give us sort of the top line of what's happening? Sure, sure. So for those who don't know, so Nazanin is a British-Iranian charity worker who went on holiday to Iran two and a half years ago um, with our daughter, who at that stage was one and three quarters, and was stopped at the airport on the way home and arrested and disappeared, um, was put into solitary confinement and later charged with uh, um, security-related charges and sentenced to prison for five years. She then had an appeal, which was lost. She then had a Supreme Court review and then in the autumn of the following year had a new court case invented against her, which was subsequently blamed on Boris Johnson, which was when we became a very big story. He misspoke, didn't he? Because he had not done any research... Uh, he didn't know what he was talking about, but he talked anyway. So that's right. But, um, but Boris Johnson <laughs> spoke in Parliament and said that uh, it's his best knowledge that Nazanin Zagarin hadn't done anything. All she was doing was trailing journalists. And then the following day, she was taken into court and it was then blamed on Boris's comments. And said, they said, see, we knew you were training journalists, you were in here infiltrating. And there was a couple of weeks of TV every day in Iran. We sort of, you know, uh, propaganda essentially sort of replaying those quotes in Parliament, getting different sort of outrage statements and saying, listen, that the family has been campaigning and all these people have been trying to suppress this story and now finally he's revealed it. So it was pretty high stakes. And, and obviously there were various calls for him to resign. And it became, Did he? Um, not at that time not as such um, but he has since I mean in the end we got to meet with him um, we lucky you we um, <laughs> got uh, um, was he interested at that point it was a pretty big deal yeah, yeah. because he um, was in the press every day because of it. most people in Britain will remember that um, can I just ask about Boris as well what did he smell like because he seems like a Davidoff cool water man to me <laughs> 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 I mean, my memory of that, it's sort of one of the only times in my life I've actually been a really important person. And, and we went into that meeting and there was, I don't know, something like 40 cameras. Fil- you know, and you see on the news, people sort of filming someone important going to somebody and just film and asking, Mr. Ratcliffe, what do you think? What's going to happen? And then going in and, and we had this, and obviously it's quite stressful meeting, you know, the first time I'd met the Foreign Secretary. It's the, you know, and it was pretty high stakes for him, but it was pretty high stakes for us as well. I mean, every day journalists were asking what was happening and we were on the front page of The Sun and we, were, you know, we did a press conference straight afterwards that was live on Sky and they cut Prime Minister's questions to do it. So it was a lot bigger than anything we'd ever done before. We'd been campaigning for a year without that attention. And in there, there was a photographer that was just taking photos, like right kind of as close as I am to Natalie. Well, I was trying to sort of you know, bumblingly running this meeting without knowing what to say. And it was a very surreal experience. I, was, I mean, actually, Tulip was there with me. I was very glad that, uh, you know, I had someone that, that had some idea of what to do in this. You know, if you think we were a, you know, family story that had been battling away on different levels and suddenly ended up becoming embroiled in a much higher level of British mm-hmm. politics, it's the only time in our story we've got trolled. Um, it's the only time in our story where we got... Um, trolled? Good yeah, be- because it became about a story... The part of the reason why it became big news is because there have been two government ministers who resigned the week before. There was a whole sense that this was, you know, wrapped up with, is the government going to fall? Is Brexit going to fall? And it suddenly became... So people who were defending 
their so project. So you became a pawn in Brexit. And, and defending their hero. And, and here's this, why is this being blamed on Boris when it's nothing to do with him and it's the Iranian? So it just became really high stakes. And kind of one of the things I think is always hard in our story, you know, to keep focusing on what our fight is, what our fight isn't, you know, and keeping sort of Nazanin at the centre of it and it not being about other stuff. One of the Secret Policeman's podcast live episodes that we did with Amnesty at the Edinburgh Festival, during that there was an announcement that Nazanin was being released for three days, and that was August this year. How did that go? Yeah, so that's exactly right. We, um, we had been battling for ages, and then all of a sudden she was released from prison. And we'd had rumours before, and so in some ways it shouldn't have been a surprise, but it was a complete astounding surprise. And I got a phone call one morning to say that she was out on the street. And she'd been let out the door, um, giving them 10 minutes to pack, wasn't allowed to call her family, was out on the other side of the road, had to borrow a phone off a stranger and call her brother. I mean, the most what? extraordinary thing. So she called her brother, and, and then her brother came, and, and obviously I got to speak to him. And there's a, there's a time difference. So I was, was asleep, got woken up with this sort of big grinning face. Mm. You know, when you can't quite believe, and, and you, you know, your brain coming too. So lovely, and that's the first time I'd seen her in two and a half years. Um, you so can't go to Iran to visit her, can you? Can't get a visa. But your daughter is there, is still there so that she can visit her mother. That's right, that's right. So um, you haven't seen your daughter in that time? No, I've seen her on Skype. There was a time where we had a very close relationship and there was a time where that became distant and then she's had to adapt to the fact that you know, both of her parents haven't been there for her and she's you know, learned to rely on granny and her grandfather and yeah, adapted to a new space. You always seem to me like the calmest, most patient man in the world. How are you doing this? Why are you not screaming and shouting? Like when Boris said what he said, which really put your cause back, why were you not like saying, fuck you? Like, you know, like <laughs> screaming in the streets, like ripping your shirt up. Like why, I just feel like, why are you and how are you so resilient, so patient? It's sort of like, you're like, well, this is going to take a long time and this is what we do every day. We get up and we fight to get Nazanin back. How do you do it? I don't think I ever allow myself to think this is going to take a long time. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Just... Uh, thanks for that. <laughs> sorry. It's going to take a short time. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it was, you know, it's completely arbitrary when it happened. It, it'll end arbitrarily. Um, the three days is an example of that where it was amazing she was out and it was awful when she was suddenly brought back in. And part of that means that then I think, you know, with campaigning, it is about keeping going and it's about sort of doing things for the next couple of weeks. You know, it's not quite day-to-day -day living, but it's a bit longer than that. I'm glad no one told me it was going to last two years at the beginning. One of the things actually Tulip said to me right at the beginning, um, when I was all sort of spitting fury and wanted to say, I think government this and, and, and just really go on fire, is just to calm me down and say, listen, just, you know, my job is to battle the government. Your job is just to, you know, to keep being strong and stable for Nazanin, which was very good advice. Well, you certainly are. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And in regards to like the political battle and giving Nezanina a voice with the government, like Tulip, um, how are you going about this? It's interesting being here because the guilty feminist, I was thinking, I really did feel like a feminist when Richard first came to see me at my house. I'd had a 40-hour labour, I'd had an emergency C-section, and I was at home breastfeeding my baby. And I got a call from my office manager saying, 
Did you know there's someone in our constituency who's been stopped at the border, can't come back, is imprisoned in Iran? And they live in Fortune Green, which is five minutes down the road from me. And you know, at that moment, you don't think about your labor, you don't think about your emergency C-section, you just think about, get that guy into the house, we need to find out what's happening. So Richard appeared, as calm as ever, by the way, can I just say, even at that moment. He's always like this, because I yes. find him just... Yes, So I it's right because I, I lost my reading glasses earlier today, <laughs> and I had a full meltdown. I really did that, I'm very overtired, and I had a full meltdown about it. And then I just realised I could just print everything out and big print. But, <laughs> but the fact that he's so calm, and you had a C-section, and you were Emergency. like straight on the case. And if you don't Emergency. mind me saying you're pregnant again. That's right. I mean, I, Always I, pregnant. I'm just, I feel like I might, I might have told you that, and you didn't know already, but it, it's... Yeah. Uh, well, when um, you were saying about your emergency C-section, I was like, you do know you're pregnant now. Yeah, I was like, thinking that. I was thinking, <laughs> she's not had it yet. She's not had it. She's pregnant now. But you were pregnant then and you're pregnant now. It can happen to one woman more than once. It can happen to a... It's, it's going to be an elective C-section this time, just as an aside. <laughs> anyway, so, Great. I'm, I'm, as I'm as appropriate for an MP. Yeah. Elective. <laughs> so... So you're lying there, you've had this C-section emergency, you've got a baby on your breast. Yep, and so, just so you guys know, there's no maternity leave for MPs anyway in Parliament. So I was back on my emails and all that. And then my office manager calls and says, right, you've got to meet him. I said, okay, bring him to the flat. And Richard walks in, calm as ever, doesn't bat an eyelid, the fact that there's a baby kind of hanging off my breast, he doesn't seem to mind. And then I called Jeremy Corbyn because I thought, right, we have to get some political interest in this. And then Jeremy appears in my flat. Um, well, and you've got a breast out yeah. with a baby on it. Yeah. That's the ultimate power move as well. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have these two men, Jeremy Corbyn and Richard Radcliffe, in my living room. Me in my maternity dress, breastfeeding Azalea. And at one point, while I'm taking notes about the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, Azalea, my daughter, starts screaming, and I just hand the baby to Jeremy. And, um, <laughs> and she did calm down, and then I started taking notes from Richard, but essentially the story Richard told me, in the calmest possible way, was that his wife had gone on a holiday with their little daughter to visit his in-laws, her grandparents, and that when they were returning... At the border, they basically stopped Nazneen. They put charges against her, saying that she was planning to overthrow the government, the Iranian regime, accused her of being a spy. They put Gabriella with the grandparents, and they put Nazneen in solitary confinement, right? Now, Gabriella, the daughter, is British citizen. And that was my hook from the start, because the problem is, because Nazneen is dual national... The government here have unfortunately not been as accommodating as they are to someone who's solely British. So the child doesn't so have So she's any British, room. but not British enough. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, she's a dual national. So I'm a dual national. What the fuck? Does that mean? <laughs> I find that very offensive. You're not Iranian dual national, are you? Because don't go to Iran then. No, no, okay. no, no. Just Aus- checking. No, Australian. Okay, but, okay, you know, okay, fine. <laughs> but it's not. I just find it really upsetting though that it's just, it's because it's like, oh, well, you're sort of a bit British. But... Absolutely. It's that, where are you really from? Yeah. Which I get on a daily basis. Yes, that's, that, that's the problem. Has there ever been like numbers crunched of how many white dual citizens get help as opposed to non-white dual citizens? Because I, I don't want to say it, but... It sounds a bit racist to me. <laughs> you said it on me. And I just, I think there's 
different cases because different countries have different rules. In Iran, they've always been clear they won't recognize dual nationality. The Iranian authorities have always said that. So if we refer to Nazanin as a British citizen, they will correct us and say, no, she's Iranian. That's not the same in every country, but Iran is like that. So initially, the conversation was about what do we do? And Richard is being very modest. He actually was very brave in going against the wishes of the Foreign Office. When he first met with them, they said, keep this quiet, don't campaign, don't talk about your wife publicly, and we will make negotiations behind the scenes. That's what they said. Now, Richard was sitting there, realizing weeks were passing by, nothing was happening. His wife was in solitary confinement. He couldn't have conversations with her. She couldn't see her daughter, and we had no idea what was happening to her inside one of Iran's most notorious prisons. So Richard made the brave decision of going public and campaigning, which not a lot of prisoners do. So when he went public and started campaigning, that's when we decided we needed to get the government's attention. Unfortunately, we tried to see Boris Johnson, the then Foreign Secretary, for 18 months. 18 months of writing to him, doorstepping him, turning up at number 10, handing petitions, literally, okay, not turning up to his house, but almost to the point where how do we get to see him? Not only would he not meet Richard and the family, he wouldn't meet me either. And you're an MP. He's a very busy man. He's having affairs. Like, (laughs) that's a lot to take on. I don't know if you've tried it. It's a lot of work, you know. <laughs> Again, You're I wrong. said it, not you. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking it, but you know, politicians all that. Um, so he sees me in the lobby. I mean, not in the same lobby because he's obviously a Tory, but we are in the lobbies. And, you know, four days a week and, and he still wouldn't meet with us so desperate attempts we write to him I raise it at Prime Minister's questions with David Cameron and Theresa May when she comes the first day Theresa May comes into office we go and petition her at number 10 with a Conservative MP another person another MP who has a constituent of his in prison in Iran so this is very much a cross-party thing the only time Boris Johnson snapped to attention is when he made this very serious error in front of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, where he sat there and said Nazanin was training journalists. Now, that is a crime in the eyes of the Iranian authorities, and that is not what Nazanin was doing. She went out there with her baby daughter to go and see her parents and to see Gabriella's grandparents for a holiday. That's why she went. And so he sat there and said she was training journalists. Why did he say that? I actually think Boris Johnson, because he doesn't pay any attention to detail, he, I think that is why. I mean, I don't, I, I'm honestly not sure. I don't think it was a malicious thing. I don't know what you think, Richard. I actually don't, I think it was incompetence rather than being malicious. Yeah, what do you think? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think it's a bit unfair to say he has no attention to detail because look at Brexit. That was his idea. <laughs> and that is planned to a fault. I mean, it's hard to see an I not dotted or a T not crossed in the... Um, this is a pattern in his life, isn't it? Getting caught, having an affair, doing Brexit. Uh, do you know? <laughs> These all can be messed so, up with a text. Basically, another Boris just sort of incompetence, but one that can cost somebody years in an Iranian prison. So, you know, Boris has made blunders before and been forgiven this incredible privilege that he has when he's forgiven for making blunders. This wasn't a blunder. This is a serious error. This is one where Iranian state TV kept repeating his words over and over again on television. They made a program of it. 
it proved to them that she was guilty because the foreign secretary of our country had stood there and said this is what she was doing. So it was a huge setback for us. But ironically, that's the moment when the government, Boris Johnson, and the authorities in this country jumped to attention. That's the first time where I got a call from the foreign office saying, the foreign secretary would like to see you after 18 months. It's so Richard, British, isn't it? You have to wait for them to fuck it up before they fix it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How is he going to ruffle his hair out with this one? Do you know? Carry so on House we, of Commons. We turn up. Richard and I turn up with Richard's father and a few other people um, that we wanted to take to the meeting. In that meeting, Boris Johnson promises us the world. He categorically says he will leave no stone unturned to free Nazanin. He says those words. He says that he wants to get Richard a visa to go out to Iran. Because bear in mind, everyone, that Richard hasn't seen his daughter in two and a half years. And I've seen pictures of her when she first left, when she was a baby. She's a little girl now, you know, a proper little girl now. And he's missed out on a, a few years of her childhood. And for someone who has a baby around the same age, I, anyway, I don't even want to go into it. So he says he'll get Richard a visa to go. He talks about how he's going to get Nazneen out. We tell him, you will be Nazneen's hero if you get her out. That's what Richard's father tells him. Nazneen's father tells him that. And he's planning a big trip to Iran at this point. So we really have our hopes up about him being able to do something. He goes to Iran. He comes back. And he says we have to be patient. He doesn't take Richard with him. He doesn't get Richard a visa. He doesn't free Nazanin. So he comes back. So he's not my favorite person, is what I can say to you. He comes back, and after he leaves, Jeremy Hunt comes in as foreign secretary. And do you know what, though? I mean, I'm going to say this, and as much as I hate the man for the NHS and what he did to it, he's actually been good on Nazanin. He has actually been good. He has said things which I didn't expect him to say. He has said she should be released, that she is innocent. Those are the words we wanted from Boris Johnson, and he never said them. Jeremy Hunt said that. He met with Richard immediately, didn't he, Richard? He's kept us informed. When I asked at Prime Minister's Questions if Theresa May would meet with President Rouhani of Iran when they went to the UN in America, Jeremy Hunt was nodding along. I was shocked. And then things started changing. Nazneen started getting more access to the British Embassy. She had calls with Richard. She gets visits with her daughter. So please, I mean, don't get me wrong. I hate Jeremy Hunt because of what he did to the NHS. I'm just going to say this once more. But... No, and you're good. a Labour MP, but to he get things done, he you have to reach across yes, the aisle to the people exactly. who are in power. And I'm not partisan like this because, to be honest, this is not a partisan issue. We have to get this innocent mother out. She's been in yeah. jail now for two and a half years. She's missing out on her daughter's childhood. The first time she was out on this temporary release for three days, this furlough, that's the first time Richard saw his wife on Skype. And that's the most I've seen Richard smile, I think. And this woman has been locked up. She's not having access to medical treatment. She's been suicidal. She's threatened to go on hunger strike. We are failing as a country, and the government is failing if we can't protect our British citizens who are imprisoned for no reason abroad. Yeah. Emmy, um, 
you decided to do a play on this subject. You've produced it, you've written it, you've directed it yourself. How did that come about and how were you able to bring Nazanin's voice to life? It actually came about through Twitter, which is a wonderful thing. My mother actually heard about the story first and came to me and she was like, this is appalling, I can't believe this is happening. And I started doing some research and I think what shocked me most was I hadn't heard about it. Mm. So this was December, Nazanin was taken earlier that year and I, I hadn't heard anything about it, like vaguely remembered hearing things on the news but nothing that kind of really got me. So started doing research. My younger sister actually went and interviewed Richard and I started listening to the interview and I just couldn't believe it. And it could have been fiction, what I was hearing, because it was so appalling. And I think that's kind of what helped me make then the jump into theatre. One, because it was just, I mean, how could this be real? But also, two, because that's kind of what I know, and I wanted to help. So I signed the petition, and I was like, what's the next step for me? What can mm. I do to help? And the next step is turn this into a theatre piece and get it to the people, one, on a level that maybe you haven't heard about Nazanin and Gabriella and Richard, but also if you have heard about them, to reach you on a deeper level, on a more emotional level than you might have got from the news stories, which is what my original issue was, is that I just hadn't connected. Which it did, I saw it in Edinburgh, and it was very, very moving. And Richard was actually in the audience that day, and you did Q&A afterwards. How is it to put on a play like this where it changes with the news does the play get longer like how do you how do you it manage it yeah we started with a 60 minute play it's now an hour and a half so oh my gosh. <laughs> we've had to add an interval uh which was a big issue figuring out where do we stop this story and go right this is heartbreaking now go and have a drink come back and we'll carry on <laughs> it's a really interesting challenge for myself as a writer and director but also for the actors especially in edinburgh usually we have it's not a massive issue. I mean, when Boris made his screw up, we were actually performing that night that you had the meeting with Boris. But then this year in Edinburgh, we were up there and I got a text off Richard going, check your emails. And that was it. And I was like, okay. Uh, I had a look at my email and it was a press release saying Nazanin has been released. And I think we had wow. about three hours between getting that email and putting on the show. Oh and I just kind of went, right, I'm going to the pub. You lot go on the mile and start flyering. And I will call you when I figure out who's in the next scene. And it was literally that. And oh, my God. Like, okay, send me Natalie and James. Guys, here's your new scripts. Get rehearsing. You've got half an hour. Oh, um, my God. It's like a very high-stakes choose-your-own-adventure as well. <laughs> What's so incredibly difficult with this is that it's not an easy story to write. So... When Richard sent me saying she's been released, it was fantastic and we were all kind of really uplifted and Richard came and saw that performance and the ending to that piece was just, everyone was in, it wasn't a positive mood, but it was just such an uplifted, inspired mood at mm. the end of it. And then three days later on our last friend show, I got an email off Richard again, three hours maybe before the show, the press release saying she's gone back into prison. And I started reading it and of course we were all, we were actually all in the bar and I started reading it, and I just started sobbing, and I couldn't stop. And all the actors were like, what's going on? And I couldn't tell them, and I had to give the phone to one of um, the actors in the piece, and I just went, I can't, I can't read this. You have to read this. I need to take a moment. And then I came back in, and she was crying, and the cast was crying, and then we had to figure out a way to rewrite the ending of the play when none of us could really hold back our emotions. And, of course, Richard was that, that performance... Mm. And something that was really difficult was me. It was like, I can't cry in front of Richard. He's holding it together. I can't be the... Yeah. 
sobbing mess in the corner. That's kind of my thing in front of Richard at, at all times, is don't show any bad emotions, because he's going through so much more. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> Natalie, just ask you as well, what's it like to perform as Nazanina, especially like she's a living person? This is not an experience that's behind her. Yeah. So this is a constant thing. And like members of her family could be in the audience. What was it like for you? The first time we had to um, perform it to Richard, I think we were all really scared. <laughs> I wanted, uh, how do I say this? I needed to go to the toilet suddenly. And I was really, because it was in a very small room and he was right in front of us. Uh, so it was quite intimidating. We were all very nervous. But then you abandoned that really quickly as well. Because at the end of it, because I, I think in my vanity, I was thinking, God, what if I'm not like her? <laughs> what if I'm not portraying her accurately? What, what if I don't sound like her? And I don't, you know, this is just us telling her story so you abandon that very quickly and you just move on with the with the job and with the work and and and, and you do the best as you can yeah and he's been so generous with us he has he's answered all of our questions and some of them have been quite private and personal and he's done his best to really help us out and could you review natalie's performance Richard? <laughs> Well, I mean, and so one of the things that you get, because there's a lot of people that care about this story, we get a lot of people that come and watch it, so they get quite a lot of advice from some people that come and they've seen the show a number of times, and we'll, we'll compare how different cast members have done and, and so on. I think one of the, the challenges, it's a real story where there are real people that are wanting you to tell the story in the right way and, and, and will chip in with... But, but also that it's not just fiction. And there's a way in which, for me, when we were up in Edinburgh, and I mean, I've seen the play a number of times, seeing the play back in the day was one kind of experience. Seeing the play when she was released was a completely different emotional experience. It, it wasn't nearly as sad. Because, you know, yeah, I know this, I know, but, it, you know, it's going to be all right in the end. But seeing it on that day when she was back in, it was so hard to watch, and it was so hard to do that Q&A afterwards. And I think... Part of you, you asked me right at the beginning about how you cope, and part of it is about sort of suspending the feelings a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, it, my job in some ways is to battle for Nazanin, it's to tell her story, it's to go on the television and put the facts out there and not get too upset about the government or about what the Iranians have done, but just make sure that I'm clear. And a couple of days later, I feel it. And there's this, for me, the way I'm built emotion, I can do a couple of days and then it hits. Normally, you do a three minute interviewer. I mean, there's a reason why it's not that moving. A play is a much longer emotional journey. It takes the audience in. The audience is a really important part of it. But goodness me, at the end, it's, I mean, it's a sad place. And that was very hard for me to be up in Edinburgh when all this was going on. And I didn't have my coping mechanisms of being away to sort of compose a press release, put it out, then do some BBC stuff, and it's three minutes. But this was a much... Is more that a coping thing. mechanism for you to do some activism around it? Is to sort of go, right, well, this is what I need to do. I need to do my press release. There's kind of a, probably almost at a deeper level. I, I think for me, the hardest part of all of the journey was not the very first day she was taken, because if I'm honest, I didn't quite get it, didn't quite understand what was happening. And, you know, I got a phone call to say she hadn't got the plane and should be on a later plane and there was a problem with her passport. And I took that at face value and went back to sleep. So it took me a few days to actually hear... Not the words that her family were saying, but the panic in their voice and the fact that it, you know, it wasn't just normal in Iran that people get trouble in the police and, and so on. And probably for me, the hardest part was after a couple of weeks, I finally think I need to do something and going around and talking to different people. And I met other families that were, had been through it and were on the other side, but also some families that were still going through it and realising that this is what Nazanin is going through. Mm. And I've sat there and done nothing. And that was a really hard 
you know, where the wheels fell off. Because I, I was still going to work at that point. And I stopped being able to sleep or, or anything. So for me, in some ways, campaigning was about doing something for her. I mean, in fairness, it, one of the ministers we once met that told me that I shouldn't be campaigning, I should go into therapy instead. I mean, it, it, it was... I didn't take it well, but, but there's a... There's, <laughs> there's a truth in there as well, that there is a therapeutic quality to it and a cathartic. But I think, for me, why is campaigning important? It's important that Nazni knows that people care for her. It's important that Nazni knows that people are battling. And it's been profoundly important that, you know, and, and it's sort of people like Emmy in the cast, it's people like the Amnesty supporters, it's people that sign our petition on change. There's all this world out there of kindness, out of people caring and reaching out. And Can people write to her? You can't get a letter through. Um, oh, we're getting to that, don't worry. That's on my clipboard. <laughs> Deborah's but, got, but thank she's got, you. She's got an agenda. I love, what did I tell you that they would want to know? <laughs> Remember, I said to all of you, what do they want to know? They want to know what they can do to help because that's our audience. Mm. So thank you. Thank you for anticipating that. Do you think the play has helped people understand Nazanin's story and has it been important for resilience? Is it something that you think has done some heavy lifting for you? I've done loads of interviews. I've done speeches and so on. And, and you know, sometimes you move a room and sometimes you don't. But I've never moved a room the way I've seen that play move people. It really, I mean, it's a bit like the monologue, but the full thing where you just see the journey that Nazanin goes through. You see what it's like to be her, what it's like to be me, what it's like to be the government. And it's all based on our words. It's not, I mean, you know, you get the angry bits, you get the, the fair bits, you get the whole thing. That's something that a play can do in a way that a three-minute interview just can't. Has it been important? It was so important for Nazanin, for the other women in her cell, that, you know, a play was written... And that when they're sitting in those grey walls and you know, being bullied, those bastards don't get away with it. That there's people out there who are telling our story and telling our story to a national, international audience. It's the people that come to see the play and that give of themselves in, in different ways. There's also the idea of the play and that you're not alone. And that's such an important part of what you know, activism is about, is that you know, it's the audience of people caring and saying, listen, the world can be different. It doesn't have to be like what you're going through. It's a challenge, you know, in someone that's not there to develop a work of art and to be an effective politician or campaigner while keeping a space for the real person and a real voice that we represent. I mean, yourself as a politician, we have the play going on and you're working hard behind and I just want to know what it's like for you as a person as well. The first time I spoke to Nazanin was when we had a little rally for her trying to get her home before Christmas. This was uh, last year. And I just remember Nazneen rang Richard on his phone and then he put her on speakerphone and that was the first time I heard Nazneen's voice. And for a start, she didn't quite sound the way I expected her to. But what was really funny was it was like chatting to another West Hampstead mum just on a play date because she started saying, oh, yeah, and does your daughter like Peppa Pig? Because we had tickets to Peppa Pig World. And when I was in solitary confinement, I suddenly realised that I can't take Gabriella because I've still got the tickets for Peppa Pig World. And then while she's telling me this, there's this voice from the Iranian prison reminding you in Persian that you are speaking to a prisoner. It's just so surreal because... Those are the conversations I have every day with the local mums at West Hampstead when I'm walking around with my daughter. And this is a lady I'm speaking to on the phone in Iran about Peppa Pig. I mean, you just can't get any more surreal. So I think it's just a reminder of the fact that she's a normal person. She's not just a statistic. And that's Mm. one of the things I've tried to emphasize over and over again when I lobby the government, when I've lobbied uh, people in positions of power, when I've tried to appeal to the Iranian authorities is that she's not another statistic, because that's very easy. You can very easily think, 
yet another person in prison, dual national. Sometimes the Foreign Office, when we have briefings, will say things like, this is how many dual nationals we have currently abroad. And I'm like, well, Nazanin, and then I'll come back to the fact that she lives locally, she has a daughter, yeah. that she has a husband. That's the challenge, isn't it, really? It's to keep it kind of personal and keep reminding people that she is a person. That's right. Yeah. That's the challenge. But it's also a challenge of how to keep the story alive because... Richard and I have realised through all the campaigning that people eventually forget. I mean, for a start, Brexit has taken over everything. So it's very hard to get attention on any other story. But you have to find new hooks to get people interested. So one of the things we do is, because we both live in the same area, there's a lot of celebrities who live there, we managed to pull in people like Emma Thompson, who came and did a rally for us. So, Ooh. yeah, she, yes, she did, actually. <laughs> she did. So we had celebs helping us from North London. But it's also about... When she was out on her temporary release, she actually, her family had a call from the Iranian authorities saying that if she tried to contact the British embassy, then her family would be harmed. And that's one of the things I raised with the prime minister. So I said, did the prime minister think it was acceptable that a British citizen was warned against contacting her own embassy? That's the kind of thing that really it hits them where it hurts. Like, mm. That's really hitting Theresa May to say, a British citizen has been warned about not contacting her embassy because her family will be harmed. Do you think that's acceptable? Mm. And the Prime Minister said she didn't think it was acceptable. But that's pushing her into a corner. That's mm. my continuous challenge, is trying to find things where she admits that this situation is appalling. Mm. Because otherwise... It's just, you know what politicians are like, like, you know, just try and... <laughs> we're, we're the most unpopular profession after estate agents, according to the survey. So, which is, <laughs> you know, more than bankers. So, yeah. yeah. Yes. But the thing yes. is, I think we need to divide, you know, like, Tulip, what you're doing, without MPs like you, we'd be screwed. So we must never do that, oh, all MPs, they're the same. You know, we really need you. We need more MPs who are doing their job. And, you know, in this case, we need to reach across the divide and no matter what party we support, we need to rally MPs who can get things done. Yeah. In a world full of barrises, be more tulip, I think. <laughs> 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 we'll get you a T-shirt with that on. <laughs> I should say, just carrying on from what you've said, if you live in an area where there's a Conservative MP, actually, whichever area you live in, if you find out who your local MP is, please can you write to them and say, please can you raise this with the government, particularly if you live in an area with a Conservative MP, because this is a cross-party campaign. I know I've had a bit of a go at Tory um, politicians, but... I'll tell you, Boris, everyone does that. Yeah, it's fine. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, but in all honesty, if you can write to your MP and say, this innocent mother is in prison, we need to bring her back, do what you can to lobby Theresa May and the government and Jeremy Hunt, it would help our campaign massively. And the reason why I emphasise the thing about Conservative MPs is because naturally the Prime Minister is more inclined to listen to her own party than an opposition backbencher. So if you can do that, that would really help tonight. Okay, great. great. What else can we do? We want practical things that we can do. We've already been heckled with what can you, what can we do <laughs> in the nicest possible. It's the loveliest heckle in the world. What can we do? <laughs> What else can we do, Richard? What's the main... I want to come and make you a lasagna. <laughs> and I don't do that for my own husband. I don't cook. Lasagna is I mean, always it, welcome. To be honest, it'll probably be an M&S one, I'll be honest with you. But it'll be the thought... 
that counts, Richard? What can we do? I mean, the, the, the main thing we have, we have a petition on Change.org, which, which many of you may have signed, but if you haven't, please do. Um, we're almost at two million signatures, so we're trying to get it up to there. And it's one of those things that Nazneen's family track how many people have signed. So it, it feels like it's important. In that petition, that's also where we put various other asks and requests. So once you've signed it, you then get all the updates and requests and so on, which you, know, you can switch off if you want. But, so there are various things that are coming up. But probably if I was going to choose one of the things, um, of all the things that we've ever asked people to do that's important to do, on our one-year anniversary, we did an event where... We asked people to imagine if they had one day of freedom, what would they do with it? And to write that little note, which we hung from a tree, it comes up in the play. The idea with it is to collect almost like a recipe book of nice things to do. So, you know, it could be going to the Bluebell Woods or it could be making jam with your kids or it could be, um, I mean, we got lots of going to Legoland from anyone that we asked was age eight. Going to Legoland? <laughs> Eight-year-olds thought that was the only thing worth doing. <laughs> um, but one of the things when, you know, I mean, it seems a bit up and down, but, but when you come out, it, you need to rediscover the joy of life. And having that list of all these things that are collected on the petition, you know, so I promise us once, you know, every Saturday we'll do one of them. And as a way of just sort of, you know, picking ourselves up again. You're basically asking people to write in hope. Yeah, share your enthusiasms. And you can find it on our petition on change.org. It's on the day 365 update. Or it's also on um, How Productions on their website. They've got a thing that you can do. Because we do it in the play as well. We ask the audience to share their ideas. And we are, I mean, we're genuinely compiling it. And Nazanin knows about these. And do you read them to her when you get to talk to her? Not systematically. Um, normally she wants to update me on what she's been doing. <laughs> <laughs> but she knows that you're doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, and, and she's contributed some as well. She's contributed some as well. So, yeah, and these are things you're looking forward to doing together. Yeah. Um, so if you could all contribute something to that that would be really nice Um, and Emmy and no 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 Um, (laughs) I know Emmy and Natalie can I ask you as theatre makers if other people have other causes that they would like to turn into theatre because what you're doing is you're bringing it to life you're making it real and you are through you know when I went to the show I filled out one of the you know Days of Freedom uh, pieces and it is moving it connects you to the story in a way that then I want to do a show about it you know and then that has a knock-on effect for other people so what advice do you have for people who think I know I could write a story I could put on a play or I could turn this into something that's living and breathing and isn't just facts I mean my first advice is just do it honestly before I met Richard before I read about this on Twitter I'd never written a play I had produced a couple of shows. I directed a couple of shows. I was mainly an actress. I heard about Nazanin and Richard and Gabriella. I met Richard and I was so moved. And I met with a couple of writers. And I, I just, none of them, I, I think maybe because they hadn't met Richard, nothing on other writers, but they weren't almost getting it. And I was just there frustrated. So I just started writing. And it's been a long road and it's been a lot of punctuation checks and spelling mistakes. And sending it off to Richard and just going, have I got my facts here? Because there are three different newspaper articles and they've all got different dates. But no, if you want to turn something into a piece of theatre, I would say absolutely do it because I do think it's one of the art forms where you can really connect to people. I mean, that is what art is. That's what art is, is to really connect with people and um, draw people in and reach them on a deeper level. So, There's yeah. been some, I've seen some really, really moving pieces of theatre recently. Also, my work with Amnesty International, 
really propelled me into this story and got me actually wanting to do more and provide platform for. And they are a place, if you're feeling frustrated, like what can we do? What, what else can we work on? What other injustices are there? How can we help Nezanine? The Amnesty website is always a great place to go. They've always got links to petitions and other things you can do, the people you can write to, the people you can't. So go to Amnesty International UK. And if you are global... How can people, because we've got listeners all around the world and a lot of them would like to help Nazanin even though they are not British or they're not living in Britain, what can they do, Tulip? They can write to their own MPs and parliaments. So the UN passed a resolution. Is that right, Richard? I'm just trying to check my facts here. Uh, The UN put forward a condemnation saying it was actually torture. That's right, isn't it? Um, The technical. So so there's um, a UN working group on arbitrary detention ruling on Nazanin's case. I think generally if you're living in Canada or um, the US or whatever, there's the similar thing. I mean, Nazanin's not unique. There are prisoners from many other countries. We, as families, work together. We'll be doing more of that. And certainly looking out for all of those people is important. You can write to you know, your congressman about Nazanin. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how right. effective that is, but and it definitely helps. And the European Parliament as well. So if you happen to be living where there's a, access to an, an MEP, that's also useful to write to the member of the European Parliament to say, could you raise this at the European Parliament? But essentially, the end result is putting enough pressure on Iran to say that we have to release this woman. Mm. And so whichever part of the country, world it comes from, it's useful. And it's also about saying that if she has become a pawn in a political game, which Richard and I have suspected right from the beginning, for various reasons, because of the debt that this country owes Iran, and so on, then this isn't fair. Like you can't. What, what is the debt this country owes Iran, just to be clear? I've heard about it from Amnesty, but most people won't know. Four hundred million pounds is what we owe them. What do we owe that for? Essentially, the UK sold Iran some arms and didn't deliver the arms. There was a change of government in Iran and a big fight as to how much money needs to be paid back, and it hasn't been paid back. And it's gone through different battles at different points, and has obviously become a big point of tension. And you can map all the really weird things that have happened in Nazanin's case against the ups and downs in that story. And just to explain, so we do owe them the money. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not like Iran is demanding money that we don't owe them. Our government does owe Iran this money. And we have asked directly about whether she's being held because we haven't paid the money. And the Foreign Office have always maintained that that isn't the case. But of course they would. But Richard and I, we have seen direct correlations between when Nazanin's been treated badly and what's happened and the response from this government as well. So what I'm trying to say is that whichever country you're in, if you can put pressure on your government, they may have more influence than our government does. So some men sold some deadly weapons to some other men, didn't deliver those weapons, and now a woman is in prison, separated from her child. If there was ever a time for feminism, I think we might have found it. Uh, um, I just want to break stuff up now and set it no, all on but, fire. But uh, <laughs> well, I do too. But I look at Richard, and he doesn't seem to be doing that. So I think I can't. Okay. Um, so what I'm going to do is write up next to you on a day of freedom, and then. Um, but we have to, especially if you're lucky enough that your MP is a Tory. Um, <laughs> you. This is the one time that's going to come in handy. 
write to them and see, you know, you could have something where it just automatically bounces, you know, out of your account every day. Set up a bot. Don't vote for them, but you can write to them. I'm just, just saying. You know, I'm not suggesting you vote them in next time, but I'm <laughs> suggesting if they're there now, they're the ones to pressure because they're in power and Theresa May's more likely to listen to Tory MPs going, you've got to do something about this. So there's that. There's See the Play. What we're doing is sharing Nazanin's story, and that's something that you can do, as well as writing to your MPs, as well as signing the petition. Tell people. Just share her story as much as possible, whether it's telling people that the play's on, whether it's just telling people about her, um, because you now have a much better understanding than somebody who maybe has only read about it in a newspaper. Because we always think, oh, uh, is it only me? But you already now have more understanding because you've been here in the room with Richard, listening to Tulip, talking about breastfeeding... Jeremy Corbyn. You, that's the story I heard. It was something to do with that. Um, uh, you've, you've, you're already in a better position. It's like you've been to a dinner party with Richard and Tulip and Natalie and Emmy, and you're in this gang now. You're part of the family. When's the new tour? We are currently considering doing a run in London. That's the next thing. <gasps> so if anyone knows any venues, let me know, because we're looking. You're going to do it. And then um, when's the, there's a spring tour as well, isn't And there? then the plan is that we will then do another spring tour. I mean, we're just... It's, we're going to keep going until Nazanin is out. So, and then potentially afterwards, because it's not just her in the prison, I think our next project is Voices of Evan Prison when we explore the other women who have been locked up, and potentially men. And we will, of course, also let you know through the advertisement on the podcast that we always make weekly, the Guilty Feminist podcast, there's a weekly advert. So listen out and we'll let you know when the play is coming to a theatre near you. In the meantime, keep spreading the story, keep lobbying people with power and influence. So is there anything else that I have left out that we should or could do? Go to the Amnesty website, see what else is there, see what you can do there. Amnesty.org.uk forward slash Nazanin. Um, and... Uh, do not underestimate the help with resilience. Obviously, Nazanin needs a lot of resilience. Richard needs a lot of resilience. Tulip needs a lot of resilience with her job. These guys are putting on a play that is taking it out of them. Everyone needs resilience in this, but no one more than Nazanin. And something that Lucy taught me, that she said when she was a teenager... Is it all right if I tell this story? Uh, yeah. yeah, great. When Lucy was a teenager, she got an Amnesty International magazine through the post, and she read about a prisoner, and she wrote letters, and... She did thinking, oh, was this really going to do anything? But at first, they started to treat the prisoner more nicely because they were like, who are you? Why is everyone writing a letter about you? And they started to get suspicious. Like, who is this person? Um, and eventually, this person was let out because of this pressure. They were just like, this is, we just sort of, they just sort of randomly had put somebody in prison. And they started to get freaked out because so many letters were coming. And so, you know, your one little letter, you think, oh, is this really doing anything? It does have a big effect, but in the meantime, when recently when we were at the ambassadors meeting, we heard about so many people who said they were just able to keep their spirits up because someone out there was trying, and they knew that was happening. And so that's, like, if it were us, we just want to know that, like, somebody's trying. You give up when you think there's no hope, nobody's out there trying. So you trying today makes a big difference today. It's not just the difference it'll make in the next week or month or year or six years. It's, it makes a big difference today. So we've all got to try today. Yeah. Incredible. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I feel... 
I mean, in the face of what you're all doing, and especially Richard, I feel pathetic crying. No, I'm it's quite, not pathetic I'm, at all. It's empowering to watch it. Like, you crying, saying that speech, makes me want to run behind you. If you were in battle and you did that, I'd be, let's feck some shit up. Let's do it, you know? I don't... Yeah. I don't know, do you want a weeping battle leader? If Henry V was going, what's what? The breach? I'd be like, hand me my steed. <laughs> Does someone hand you a steed? Yeah. <laughs> I'm very lazy. <laughs> um, is there anything anyone wants to say as a final word? Natalie? Come and see the show if you can. Come and see the show if you can. Emmy? Share the story, but also I haven't mentioned it. Well, I did mention at the start. Uh, tweet. I picked up this play from one person's tweet... Uh, and we've turned it into a play. And I know that when Nazanin was out for the three days, one of the things she was able to do was see the messages of hope people had left on the free Nazanin page of Twitter. And apparently that was just... I mean, Richard knows better than me. I was... Actually, we were at the uh, Policeman's podcast and Richard just leant over and went, Nazanin's on the phone, she'd like to chat with you. And we just WhatsApp for a bit. And I was trying to tell your jokes and I wasn't doing very well and she didn't get any of the jokes I was passing on to her. It was awful. She were was you like, doing I my set to Nazanin? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> just, I, was, I was like, we went a comedy Shared show. set now, I think. <laughs> I tried, I failed, it was painful. But yes, tweet, share her story, come and see the show if you can. Otherwise, any kind of support would be amazing. Thank you, guys. Great. Tulip? Uh, just to say thank you for having us on the show. Well, we did privilege. go through 18 months of barely getting any coverage and struggling to get Nazneen's name out there. And here we are um, in King's Place getting it on the podcast. So thank you. Thank oh, you. No matter. It's... <laughs> um, Richard? Yeah, I just... I mean, actually, I think what Deborah just said much more eloquently than I would, but the, you can't overstate the importance of caring. And, you know, it's important for people sitting in dark places. It's important, as Emmy was saying, that, you know, we can all try in different ways. And, you know, we can always do more, and, and I can always do more, but it's so important for Nazanin, and even when she gets really bleak, that people care, that people are doing things. It's so important for the other prisoners that people are caring about one of their own. And that's, you know, with the amnesty model, it doesn't choose all of the prisoners, it sort of targets a few. And it's really important to know you're not alone and to know, I mean, as I said, those bastards don't get away with it. I mean, we've had all sorts of people have shared all sorts of lovely messages on our petition, have done all sorts of things. And, you know, from those who are really impressive and exalted and those who are really ordinary and those who are slightly cranky, all, I mean, you know, all of us are a mix of it, really. But we can all give something. And it's been so important for keeping us going that, that everyone has done that. Well, caring is a political act. Richard, thank you so, so much. Let's give all of our panel a big round of applause. Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is Jessica Regan here from the Big Speeches Workshop. I'm so excited to share with you that we are holding our workshop again on the 5th of January at the Bunker Theatre and also on the 6th of January. There are spaces available for both workshops, for yourself or for a Christmas present for a friend. What better way to start the year than finding your voice and taking your space? Looking forward to seeing you there. charity of the week 
Hi. Oh. Hello. We have the house lights up a bit. Um, she heckled. It wasn't me. <laughs> I'd just like to start by saying thanks so much for having us. And wow, thank you to the panel. That was really incredible. As an arts charity ourselves, we um, really appreciate the power the arts can have. We are the founders of Play for Progress. Hello. We came with our T-shirts on. We're a female-led organisation. We work with unaccompanied refugee children in partnership with the Refugee Council UK. We deliver therapeutic and educational music programmes to children that have been victims of conflict and now find themselves in London alone, unaccompanied. Our programme guarantees basically that these vulnerable young people who are incredible can rely on a close-knit community of allies who use music as a tool for social change and community building. As you say, there's nothing like hope or knowing that someone cares. We're there every week. We're teaching instrumental lessons, flute, clarinet, saxophone, cello, you name it, we do it. Every student is enrolled in our program, given access to music workshops, instrumental lessons, creative arts therapy, performance opportunities, and group outings. We've performed at the South Bank, at the VNA. We're going to do the same this year, so come see us. So we do all of the above with cultural outings to museums, operas, theatres. Who knows, maybe the guilty feminists next time. <laughs> um, so we just provide the chance for the kids to explore the city and, and meet people in a safe and supportive environment, which is obviously key to helping them settle in and, and find their way. So beyond that, uh, the question I asked, how can you help? I hear you say as well. Um, you can volunteer with us. You can donate smart technology that helps with their access to education. Many young people face delays of entering education once they get here and are alone. Delays of upwards of six months. So you're alone and not learning. So donate smart technology, your life savings, instruments. Give us access to your networks. Show us you care. Show the kids you care. Do you need teachers? And we need we need teachers. So if you can play an instrument and you've been background checked, DBS. get in touch. DBS. Yep. And not just music, creative arts in its fullest. We're going to be putting on a play later on this year. Anything you do that's creative Great. in any so way. Play for Progress. What's your website? www.playforprogress.com. We're on social media, all of the channels. So these guys are going to be up the back. They're going to have uh, rattly tins. If you can afford something, pop it in. If you've come here tonight, you've paid for your ticket. There's no obligation, but they would really appreciate it. But if you're listening at home, the podcast is free. So if you would pop something in on the website, that would be much appreciated. Alison, have you got anything to plug quickly before we go? Uh, just myself, at Alison Spittle on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I reckon uh, yeah. you're the first person in a panel with Richard Radcliffe to ask, how does Boris Johnson smell? That's true. <laughs> but I didn't get a proper answer, guys. You He's like a politician. Some... He slipped out of it. Just say yes or no. Did he smell good? No, no that's fair enough. I mean, yeah, you've I've... other things to be worrying about. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't possibly recall. Yeah. But um, also, I've just moved to London, so if anyone has any jobs, writing jobs or nannying, I'm really good at that. <laughs> I can do that oh, whole... Tulips oh, yeah, tulips. Do you want a nanny for tulips? <laughs> Listen, you'll be looking after Jeremy Corbyn between two and four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Alison Spittle, and our very special guests, Richard Ratcliffe, Tulips at DKMP, Emmy Hound, Natalie Savat, and Amelda May. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp, music was by Mark Hodge, the producer was Tom Spiginski for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Zoe, Sally, and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit GuiltyFeminist.com!
that's our show. I've been Deborah Francis White. Good night. I'm a feminist, but at the Women of the Year lunch, I got a lot there. I'm just saying. <laughs> Mostly, especially if I do a lot of these shows, I'm like, you've got to go out and live life to have these because they're all true. And sometimes you think, oh, God, not much has happened. I'll make one up about John Hamm. <laughs> but you just go to one Women of the Year lunch, you can, you can bag a, a dozen. <laughs> I'm a feminist. <laughs>